0: Welcome to the CLA's first ever podcast series, Rural Business Uncovered. In this series, we will review in detail the key issues facing landowners and rural businesses today. For example, you will hear about how rural tourism has found innovative ways to deal with the COVID crisis, farm diversification through the eyes of a CLA member and how they did it, what the future of food looks like and much more. The Country Land and Business Association are the only organisation dedicated to protecting and defending the rights of landowners and rural businesses.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
0: Hello and welcome to Rural Business Uncovered, brought to you by the CLA, where each week we discuss matters affecting the rural sector. The interest in farm diversification is growing rapidly and this podcast will give an insight into a successful diversified rural enterprise run by father and son team John and Thomas Humphrey from the Pentline Estate in the Vale of Glamorgan. We'll hear what prompted diversification on the estate, the challenges along the way and their advice for farmers considering pursuing new opportunities. John and Tom, welcome to to the podcast. Now to start, could you give a brief introduction to yourselves, starting with you, John?
1: Yeah, Alid, I started off life, I suppose, as a teacher in inner London back in the late 1970s. And then I went and did a master's degree up in Manchester. And then I worked in industry for about 20 years, I suppose, after that. And then my dad had a stroke in 2001. And I joined the farm properly. And then we gradually got into various different businesses through, through the first decade of the new century. And now we've probably got about 40 businesses on the farm, some which are very large and some which are very, very small, some which we operate ourselves and a lot are through um, collaboration or tenants.
0: Oh, brilliant. And so we'll get on to talking a bit more about some of those in just a moment. But before we do that, uh, Tom, give us a bit of, about your background.
3: Well, I uh, graduated from Edinburgh University in 2007 and then spent a year or so working in political PR and advertising. But that didn't really float my boat. So I retrained as a lawyer and have just finished a decade working in commercial property law, specialising in uh, large scale mixed use developments. I moved back to South Wales permanently in March of this year, so I'm very new to the business in some ways, even though I've been sort of involved from afar for the last few years. The principal part of it in terms of recent years has been spent as a, a commercial property development lawyer.
0: Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you both. It's great having you on the podcast to talk about farm diversification. And I know there's a lot going on in the Pentline estate. You mentioned there, John, there's only 40 different businesses, but talk us through the history. And when you took over the estate from your father, talk about how, how the estate has changed during that time.
1: Well, the estate then was a very, very large livestock farm. We, we, we used to—it's about two thousand acres—and we we grew about two hundred or three hundred acres of barley, basically, to feed the cattle. I think we had we had a very, very large beef suckler herd, which lived on um, government subsidies, really. But it had the occasional uh, highlight, which was exporting young bulls to France and Belgium. The big break, I suppose, came for us in about 2004, when the local council rang us up one day and said, would we like any wood chip? And we said, well, we ain't paying for it. And they said, no, 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 that's quite wrong. We pay you. And that's how we got into rubbish. And we have become very, very big in waste processing. And now, we don't do any actual processing, but we are what's called a transfer station. We consolidate mm-hmm. local waste streams from the council, and um, then they're bulked up and sent to masses of different processing mm-hmm. plants. So from 2004 right through to about 2012, every year we were doing something different. We were taking in new, new diff- types of waste, and it, and it became a big business, that, but that That is sort of fading away, and we're now into some massive new new projects, which are very, very exciting. And I think Tom will tell you about the development which enabled it.
3: Just going back to the diversification theme, so the waste recycling business or businesses were our first foray into major diversification. But these days, I suppose that the jewel in our crown on the non-farming side, although they are intrinsically linked, is Forage Farm Shop, which opened earlier this year. I mean, that was all unlocked by the development of a 40-acre site on the estate. And obviously, when you're developing land and, and doing a development of that scale, or promoting land for development of that scale, it, it's a very emotive thing. Lots of people in the area are very passionate about it, pro and, and against. And you've really just got to put the tin hat on and engage in all the consultations and let and let the, the project take its path. But it did get planning permission the land was sold to taylor wimpy in 2016 and as a result of that capital injection which i think lots of farms these days rely on enable to do diversification in, in a major way i mean obviously there are, there are many different ways to skin the cat but it does enable you to commit significant capital expenditure to projects and really go for it and, and we use a large chunk of that money to be able to do the farm shop.
0: I'm sure it's been an exciting time. But did you have plans to open a shop before the development came about? You know, did you have ambitions to do that, or was it the development that gave you the stimulus or the driver to, to look at a large scale investment and a diversified? We're
1: business? always planning, always putting in putting in plans. If you looked at Glen which is our site uh, on the Vale of Glamorgan's planning portal, it's really quite embarrassing. It just goes into pages and pages. And pages. <laughs> things that we've tried and and been rejected on we have had during this period since 2016 we've had some really major major things we've got a twenty four thousand bird um, free range egg laying what facility. Was, facility that's the word so we've got the farm shop and restaurant which is big with a big playground area and all sort all sorts of, of We've got a big truffle orchard, which is, uh, I suppose, what's that about five acres, isn't it? Hazel, yeah,
3: uh, hazel, yeah. hazel and
1: hazel and, and truffles. Um, I bought a pub, a, a, a local pub, and we've built a massive new grain grain handling and storage installation. It's quite buzzy here, and of course the, we've kept on developing the waste recycling.
3: I, th- I think that the, the, the main theme from all of this is that we've tried lots of things and failed, mm-hmm. um, but we've never really been afraid to try. Exactly.
1: This morning, added uh, to- Tom wasn't doing it today, but I've been in, in one of the old great grain stores um, yeah. do- doing uh, hardcore fitness with <laughs> a, a ferocious woman from Bridgend. So we've laid out a, a load of jigsaw matting in there and several fitness instructors come and run their classes in there. It's just one thing leads to another, to another, to another. Um, Oh, yeah, and we're now looking at at, um, salad growing in one of the old sheds. Have you heard of vertical farming?
0: Yes, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, aquaponics and all this. This looks really, really exciting. Obviously, you've got to do it collaboratively with other farmers and industrialists, but, again, they're all desperate for space and they want space that, that has access to good supply of water, good um, electricity transmission, and all this sort of thing. We And so we are don't have to be very creative, quite honestly. We just have to be receptive.
0: Absolutely. And location is key. But, but I guess the more you do, and the more you are seen to be doing things, the more people approach you with ideas and wanting to, to put forward their business plans and hopefully either wanting to rent a piece of land or hire a building to try and do that.
3: That's true, Alid, and, and the key thing to avoid, and, and the classic elephant trap, is to get to the end of the financial year and realize that you're you've just been a busy fool and that you're you've had a really stressful, yes, engaging time, but you know, it's an awful lot of hard work and the you realise that the bigger you've got, the less profitable you've become. So it's really important to actually, you know, be relatively decisive yet not to rush into things too quickly. It's sometimes tempting to get excited about new opportunities and go all in and they suddenly mushroom and grow and before you know it. Yeah, you know, there's there's an extra couple of hours added to your day. We're thoroughly enjoying the the farm shop and and all the great local feedback we've received. But it has very it has changed our lives. We all joke about when we're going to get a weekend again. All the family <laughs> is all rallied okay. together to to try and save on labour costs during this startup phase, particularly with the pandemic. So we're all working around the clock um, in various different roles. So there's definitely a balance to be had between being receptive, growing. Uh, engaging, being commercial, but also uh, on some level, sort of taking a pause and making sure you do a, a manageable number of things well rather than a, a huge plethora of things. Less well. If that makes any
0: sense. How do you manage uh, all, all the various enterprises? I know Johnny mentioned you had forty different businesses. Some of those will be operated by tenants, uh, but there's still quite a few operated in-house, as it were. How do you manage that? And is it down to getting good people on board?
1: Every everybody rose in and has developed all sorts of skills they never knew they had. But that is the most amazing thing you find whenever you whenever you take over. And when I was when I took over in two thousand and one, I just used to regard everyone as. as just people I said hello to, and never really thought of what what their inner resources were. And it was an absolute revelation to find what clever ideas people had.
3: I think you know farmers and farming, as as the workforce and an industry, are very innovative. And there's a lot of sort of natural latent intellect there, whether it's on the mechanical side or on the operational planning side, to do with all sorts of things. You know, crop rotations. Breeding plans, all that sort of stuff. Which those skills are surprisingly transferable into all of these mm-hmm. diversified businesses. Mm-hmm. Damien, our young general manager for the farm shop, is a you know he's an agronomist by trade, and he'd worked on the farm since he was sixteen as an arable expert. And and lo and behold, all that all of those skills he picked up in planning really detailed successful crop rotations were actually made him imper- you know they made him perfect for the job in terms of delivering that project and and spinning all those plates during the construction phase and the launch, etc. Andrew, our estate manager, is constantly having to come up with all sorts of ingenious ruses. And you, you end up, like any entrepreneur, you end up learning all sorts of things you didn't expect to learn about accountancy, about insolvency, about tax, along the way and then before you realize you actually know quite a lot about it, a lot of different things um the temptation is in the past we've often done a project felt that the project sort of up and running and then moved on to the next thing whereas with the with the shop it seems like we've unleashed a monster which <laughs> require all sorts of nurturing mm.
1: i I, th- I think the best thing about it though which to be really positive is with, with food everyone is your potential customer so it's not like yeah being a, being a corporate lawyer where, where people tend to avoid you most of the time. On a nice day here, it's like Heathrow Airport when before the pandemic. You've just got wave upon wave upon wave of cars coming down the, the thing. All... Bringing money, obviously, and creating rubbish for me to pick up late in the day. <laughs> but we probably have how many? How many people would come on a on a typical saturday There's probably a hundred kids playing there in the playground. Well, yeah, yeah,
3: I'm not sure how many covers go through, but it must be approaching, um, you know, several hundred, perhaps a thousand. But you know, just to slip in that you know, I'm sure all socially distancing as per the regulation. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> of course.
3: But, yeah, <laughs> but it, just just going back to what Dad said about about food, it's it's been really interesting. Being involved in this in this new business, seeing this swing towards shopping local, and this now you know, you're never really sure if you're seeing the full picture because everyone who comes to the farm shop has made a conscious decision that they do want to shop local. Mm-hmm. But it certainly seems that there is a, a real bit of momentum there in terms of people caring about the provenance of their food and drink, showing an interest in the story, showing an interest in animal welfare, wanting to support local businesses, feeling proud of the area they come from. It's given our livestock managers a tremendous boost because they used to put the all the lambs on, on the lorry and send them off to Dunbar or whatever, and not, not really mm-hmm. see. That would be the end of the journey in terms of their commercial facing side of it. But now they're actually meeting the customers in the shop, hearing all this great feedback about the quality of the meat.
0: Yeah, because that's one of the positives I think that's come out of the COVID uh, pandemic is that people have suddenly discovered local supply chains and we constantly hear about issues and um, people challenging the sustainability of red meat production. But, But there is an increasing trend towards people perhaps reducing the amount of red meat they eat, but when they do, choosing to eat better quality meat and then prepare
1: to pay a premium for it. Do it a bit more creatively than just just a Sunday roast. Obviously. I think that's the key point.
3: Yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge supporter of those who, you know, see meat as perhaps a, a less frequent food option. Uh, used to, in bringing home the bacon, you know, it used to be that very phrase, When, I, as far as I understand it, it derived from... Someone, you know, would, would get their weekly pay and as a treat would visit the butchers on the way home. You know, we shouldn't be eating meat as much as we do, probably. If you do choose to eat meat and you and you elect to buy it, knowing that it's been responsibly raised, it's of excellent quality, you know, then I, then I think that that's, that's a, a perfectly mm-hmm. acceptable position to take.
1: And the other thing you had... To- uh, Ali, we, I remember when we used to do the fa- local farmer's market, you always found that it was really easy, especially in a town like ours, to sell the, the, the prime cuts. And you ended up with bags and bags of mints and uh, yeah. diced stew. Of course, the restaurant can use up all, 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 the, all the less, all, all cuts, the less yeah. fancy cuts. Of course.
0: And, and of course, you're a very innovative business and an innovative estate in normal times, but has COVID even driven you to think even more creatively than usual, to think of ways or how can we maintain business as usual, to, uh, as safe as possible, given the current circumstances?
3: Well, it has added, to be honest. And, and you know, I, I think we, we're all feeling pretty exhausted by it. It's, it's a grim situation. We, we recognise that. And, you know, there does have to be this constant, I was listening to the Chancellor on the radio last week and, and the, you know, the battle he's faced sitting around the table at Cabinet to fight the corner for the economy What in the face of all of these health worries and it is a very very difficult line we recognize that, that the government's having to tread but you know it, it has been exceptionally hard finding out week to week that you know you can only you can only do table service or uh, new regulations in terms of capacities and indoor premises and whether you know we, we tried to uh, get around it by getting a marquee with a nice open-sided marquee and then we were told that that might not qualify as outdoor space you know there's all sorts of worries and it's very hard to make investment decisions or commit capital to things where you're not sure if you know next month that, that, that would be completely and utterly redundant. I mean, what's what's been particularly tricky is that with a startup business, your cash flow is so delicate that a two-week interruption to that cash flow until you've actually gone cash positive after a few months of trading, if you have an interruption during that early phase, that can be absolutely devastating in terms of making the monthly payroll paying for paying for yeah. that month's stock in you know, any one time we're holding that you know up to fifty thousand pounds worth of stock it's really really is quite you know there's a lot of sleepless nights tossing and turning mm. because you know you, you don't want to have to let any staff go you want to be able to support as many people as possible carry on putting meals on tables etc but it, it, there comes a point where you think crikey is it uh you know is, is it is it worth um sending ourselves to an early grave to to, to try and keep on staying ahead of the game but you know looking to the positive side of it as I alluded to earlier our staff are really innovative they have thought of clever ways around various things that we've we've been doing pick your own pumpkins and we've put in place all sorts of systems to make sure that's safe and observing social distancing etc whilst being fun with all sorts of treasure hunts for the children and that sort of thing um our our great USP for our farm shop, which didn't require a huge amount of creativity but it was just pure good luck, was by having this lovely outdoor space where people could sit within their various pods in the open air enjoying a nice lunch. You know, I felt desperately sad for all those inner city pubs and cafes who were told that, you know, they were they were allowed to open or people were allowed to, to they could fit thirty people outdoors, you know, they've got a beer garden, you know, which is barely 20 meters squared you know it's very very difficult in those sorts of scenarios to to um, make the most of the situation Mm. but you know in in adversity we have seen a few a few triumphant things and we'll just keep on ducking and weaving whilst being safe to try and make sure we we can keep afloat until the end of this situation really.
1: Mm.
0: The Country Land and Business Association have been safeguarding the interests of landowners and rural businesses since 1907. We lobby government continually on behalf of our members to give them the security and certainty to invest in their land and business. Our in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership and rural business management to ensure the positive development of the rural economy. spent a lot of time energy and effort and dedication to establishing the farm shop but, but the, the farm still continues as well and how important is that to you as 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 obviously the brand of the estate but but also the core agricultural practice is fundamental to your identity and and I guess it spreads the risk
1: yeah well as you probably gathered Ali Tom and I neither of us come from a totally farming background I mean we've been both both Tom was brought up here I was brought up and my mum and dad had a dairy farm near Basingstoke in Hampshire when I was a small kid, because we, obviously we came back here when my grandparents died. And so we've got farming in our blood, but we've always been more semi-urban, I suppose, if you like. And uh, as I said, I, I've always worked in lots of other industries, and I think that's a very good thing. And so is Tom. I think the, we, we see it as very important, especially from the environmental point of view. We're both very keen environmentalists. Are we terribly interested in in cropping and livestock farming per se i i I don't know maybe maybe. it's um interesting but not not all consuming shall we say but i i I think that that if we stick to the model of growing crops because the vale of Glamorgan is is a good crop growing area has quite a good um if we stick to growing crops on the good land livestock on the poor land and on the really poor land which we've got a fair bit we we um Make into areas of ecological excellence. I think that's the best way to best way to run it. But fundamentally, it's an agri agri industrial business, and it always will be.
3: We, we do we do wait with bated breath, like I'm sure every farmer in the country does, for the outcomes of the agricultural bill, the mm-hmm. agricultural bill, the, yeah. the EMS. You know, how, what is it going to look like in terms of potential rewards for environmental initiatives? How that's going to work? You know, will it be based on improvements or you Know existing soil health, all those sorts of things. You know, will we, will we be able to plant thousands of trees in a meaningful way mm. and make it commercially viable? All of those things remain really, really important mm. to us. And you know, we we aren't, as Dad said, we aren't really, really obsessive livestock farmers or or arable enthusiasts. But but they certainly help prop up. They are, they remain the cornerstone of the business yeah. economically. You know, as you said, Alec, they really do help spread the risk. Our egg laying units. That's a that's a tremendously comforting source of annuity income on a monthly basis during this period of the depressed revenue at the farm shop with the mm. with the pandemic. We, we we want the farm to feel like a farm, and Dad's always felt that a, a large farm without, for example, without livestock, you know, just just mm. it's just missing something on the spiritual side almost. And and I think that that's travelled through to us kids as well. That, you know, regardless of which direction we take the business in, we do want it to remain. A farm, and we we like to tell people that we are farming and that we live on on a on a working farm.
0: Clearly, the the Pentline Estate is a very successful diversified business. But I know you, as a family, are always looking to the future. What exciting plans have you got over the next few years?
3: That's very kind of you to say uh, that we're successful. um, uh, (laughs) Actually, just going back to my earlier comment, I think that if you really if you looked under the bonnet, you'd see a lot of busy fools cowering in there. Um, (laughs) But um, in terms of future endeavours. you know, first and foremost, uh, we, we do want to kind of uh, embed the, the the more recent businesses we've started, particularly the farm shop. We'd like that to get onto a more stable footing and give it a chance to get going and really spread its wings during non-pandemic times. Fingers crossed that'll be, you know, I know that everyone says you can't put a hinge everything on the vaccine, but hopefully that will make a big difference when that comes out at some point next year. Um, you know, we're always getting approached with, with new opportunities. My brother and I, have long um, harboured an ambition to create a a boutique, aesthetically attractive office park um, in a a small site right on the edge of Cowbridge next to the new development. And we've been seeking planning permission for that for some time. Hopefully that will come to fruition at some point. Um, And and, and we've also looked into the potential to expand the uh, egg production units because, like I said, that's a very... Reliable business model and 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 revenue stream. Um, if if you're able to fund it in the, with the initial capital, because we've got a great phobia of taking on debt here, and we're we're very blessed that we've got we're very lo, uh, low geared at the moment. But I guess I, th- I think that you know in, in the immediacy, aside from smaller smaller scale projects, maybe you know encouraging some sort of farm fitness um, movement. You know on, on the place. Dad mentioned earlier that we've had a lot more interest over the last six months during lockdown from people who are keen to rent the space on an hourly basis to be able to de- deliver their fitness classes. You know, that, that sort of thing I do find, I find good fun and engaging. There's a bit of collateral benefit because it's quite nice having those facilities on your doorstep to use yourself. But I think in terms of any really large CapEx projects, we're actually just going to keep our powder dry for the time being and just try and uh, get on top of the stuff we've already started mm-hmm. um, before we, we lurch into the next thing.
1: But you are, Alan, you are driven also by events. I mean, for example, the, uh, we have this quite substantial waste, waste recycling centre, as I, I've told you, and that is probably going to come to an end in next year, towards the end of next year, because the Vale of the Morgan Council is going to build its own facility down on the docks in Barry. Now, if and when that happens, we've got a very, very smart building um, down the bottom of the valley here and that's where we would look at at um maybe doing the aquaponics thing, growing growing oh, I see. what we call small is it called small leaf salad? What's it called?
3: It's it's I can't remember the name for it, it's, but the the chap who came to see us about it was fascinating because he was talking A about the health benefits of because you can control the nutrients and it's such an efficient way of farming. Um you know, you get your six harvests a year, et cetera, et cetera. Um he he was he was saying that it's it's also great for supplying Really unusual fruits and vegetables. For uh, for example, some high end restaurants in London will want to use a particular ingredient which is only available, you know, in, in, in on maybe one or two farms in the country or even in Europe, and they have to spend a fortune importing it just to be able to dust their uh, salmon on crew with a particular type of herb or something. And that 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 piqued our interest um, <laughs> because uh, it's just so unusual <laughs> and such yeah. a strange concept, and the video graphics I'm not sure if you saw the latest david At- David Attenborough thing I mean obviously yeah. That's, yeah. It, you know, it's it, I thought it was absolutely fascinating that the Netherlands, such a small country in terms of land mass, is the second biggest exporter of food in the was it, was it in vegetables? the world, it was in in the the world. world. Uh, and that just you know they they're, they're really progressive, the Dutch in terms of you know exploiting these new technologies look you know they've got such small. Air, surface area, they they have a, key, a really keen interest on environmental stuff. And if we can get into that in a responsible way and make it work commercially, mm-hmm. that would be a fabulous thing to be involved in.
1: Right, because do you know, we, we were told by this chap, actually he was, a, he was from Taiwan, the chat we saw about 18 months ago, and, and he I think he, he told us that 85% of salad crops are imported. No reason why we can't grow it all ourselves mm-hmm. here, but it's mostly Spain, Morocco, France, uh, and Holland, of course, that's the that's the annoying thing. Holland and Denmark, who have identical climates to us, but are just cleverer than we are, and and we we need to do these things. And I always say this is the the, the weakness of the Welsh. As I was involved in agricultural politics for a long time, and the weakness of the Welsh agriculture structure is far too much, um, um, far too much, uh, primary pure primary production, i.e., I like milk but not cheese, you know that type of thing. So um, although I think it's been fantastic, as we've, as we've um, hunted for products for the shop, and we have over, over 2,000 products, overwhelmingly Welsh, there are masses of great, of great artisan producers out there. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah,
3: No, it does. It makes you... It makes you, it makes uh, you very proud. It sounds corny, but it's... Um, seeing, seeing all of these uh, Made in Wales labels on these really high-quality, good-value, creative products is really really encouraging Mm. and does it does make you very proud um makes you realize there's a huge amount of talent on our doorstep and and often it's probably just about how to commercialize their ideas successfully and Mm. and give them a lift give them a boost because um you know that we've already had several suppliers whose businesses have grown directly off the back of being stocked in the shop in our farm shop and that is such a rewarding thing Mm. there's a lady who, who makes cakes and supplies um pastries and brownies to the shop and she was doing it more as just a, a a hobby and a passion at her weekends when she first came on board with us. And she was doing a job which she didn't particularly enjoy uh, during the week. I think she's I think she was um, had a corporate role, or was, or was involved in insurance or something. Um, and and then and then we've used her so much that she's now been able to uh, quit her job and convert her garage into a proper cake making facility. And, mm-hmm. and into now you know she's she's. Being able to follow her dream, which is um, is a lovely thing to see. So that that can be another knock on effect of starting mm. businesses in your local area. You draw in people in the in the sort of satellite region around you who are then able to make it grow with you, and and it's it's such a sort of symbiotic relationship. It's lovely.
0: I'm sure that's very rewarding. Seeing the benefits that other people get from from your initiative, from developing the farm shop, and, and seeing your suppliers grow with you, which, which I'm sure is a real benefit uh, to, to what you're doing. Now, this is a fascinating conversation and it can go on and on and on. But what I really want to, to focus on now as, as we draw this podcast to a close is what would be your advice to CLA members who are considering diversifying into other enterprises? What, what would you say are your top tips?
1: Absolutely say yes to everything. Yeah, that is the key thing. You, 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 you never know which it's like, you know, like a decision tree in, uh, when, you're, when you're trying to lay out a project. At, at every fork, loads of other opportunities pop up. And if you keep saying no to everything, no, we try, because I always remember we used to have a lovely chap, and I'm not going to mention his name, but our regional director many, many years ago. and We used to sit at CLA committee meetings and he'd always say, no, goodness me, no, no, we can't do that. We tried, We tried that about 25 years ago, absolutely hopeless. In other words... You, there are a lot of people who really do like to, to put the blocks on things, and you must w- – Wales, sadly, is packed with blockers, and you, need, and you need to push them out the way and say, well, I, I, I hear all your advice, usually from your accountant and, and lawyer and everyone else, but I'm going to do it anyway, and all I want you to tell me is how not to make a mess of it. And, and that, that is my advice anyway. Don't be put off by, by miserable people. And this is, this
3: is why we're, we're quite a um, combative but, but good team because I'm far more risk averse than dad. So I, my advice would be to, to have a, a measure of what he says in terms of never closing the door on any, any opportunity but, but the key for me is taking good advice and seeking out advisors who tell you how you can do things, not why you can't do yes, them. Yes, correct. So with a farm shop, there were, there were probably 100 reasons why, why, why it might have been a bad or risky idea. But we, we sought out a um, specialist consultant called Appetite Me who deliver farm shops for landowners all around the country. And they've sort of held our hand throughout the whole thing, from the design and construction right the way through to the stocking and merchandising. And they are really sort of can-do people. They're, they're the sort of you know that's the um, that's an example of, of, a, of an advisor who says, "Now we can make it work if we do this, 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 and this." Rather rather than it won't work because you haven't got a because you haven't got the right access. Mm. You know, they they'd say, "Well, if you had the right access, and it will definitely work." So it's all about getting that access. Mm. And they've,
1: amazingly, they they done all the forecasts based on God knows what, and okay, we've exceeded those forecasts. But how the hell they generated them, and and that somehow out of nowhere, you you automatically create these huge businesses is very very impressive. It was quite funny. We when, when we started, we said to said to him, but surely we should have a great wall of. Fresh vegetables and fruit when they come in. All farm shops have that. He said, waste of time. He said that all that will happen is you'll be, uh, people like the look of it, but they don't buy it and they'll throw it all away. And mm. so we, we we said, well, I don't know, we still quite like to have have some. but if you must, you can do it, but you'll chuck it all away. So what we are now stuck to doing is just seasonal, <coughs> seasonal stuff as they come in, you know, sometimes not particularly attractive things, things we all remember from school. But but that is what people actually are quite happy with in the, in, in the shop. They, they, they like looking at a great, some displays of stuff, but they won't buy it. So we've learned a lot.
3: Yeah, so just, just be guided by realistic, practical advisors. And if someone tells you you can't do something, try and find someone who tells you how you can do it.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's some really good advice. And always surround yourself with good, positive people. That's always key for any successful business. Well, John and Tom, I've really enjoyed your company on this podcast. It's been fantastic. And I've been very lucky. I've visited the Pentline Estate, and I know it's a thriving hub of enterprise. Loads of things going on there. And can I wish you and the family all the very best for the future? Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Thanks Alan. All the best. see you soon. Bye
0: then. If you're not a member of the CLA, you can join today. More information can be found on our website, www.cla.org.uk. Thank you for listening, and I hope you can join us again soon. You've been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast, the CLA's new weekly podcast released every Friday. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss
4: an episode.